Welcome to the Her Holistic Path podcast for women awakening to their spiritual journey, mothers looking to heal and live holistically, and all in between. This is where spirit and science collide to deepen, refine, and even challenge what it means to be a divine feminine being. Let's journey together. Peace and wholeness. Today, we are talking about five mistakes to avoid that could potentially ruin your birth. It's a little bit of a heavy episode. (laughs) I'm just going to give that disclaimer because a lot of these things I see happening all the time. I see them happening just in the world of birth. Mothers who sharing their journeys uh, on the Internet, people I know, and even my clients. And I try to steer them in the right direction. But I want to say, and I want to make this crystal clear, that although I'm titling this episode, Five Mistakes to Avoid, I don't really believe there are any mistakes. I believe that our mistakes are really lessons. And I believe that we all come here with a certain set of lessons and really relationship interactions that we have in some ways agreed to either consciously or subconsciously to play out for a very specific reason. So with that being said, although it's called a mistake, honestly, this is your life path. This is your journey. And if you have made these decisions in the past or currently, don't feel bad because chances are, I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know you. It's a lot of people listening to this podcast. So rest in the peace that everything is divine. Everything is for you. Everything is happening by you. And so really there are no mistakes. And we can always look at a mistake and learn a lesson. Now, let's go in. (laughs) I'm going to hop right into this. Number one. Picking a midwife that's really a med wife. Now, before I get into the difference between a midwife and a medwife, let's just clarify what a midwife is today. So there are various different pathways to become a midwife, uh, but we're going to look at the two main types, the CNM, the certified nurse midwife, and the CPM, certified professional midwife. Now, both of these types of midwives work for the state, meaning there are certain rules, protocols, and laws that they have to abide by because of their medical licensure. Now, this is important to realize because the rules and the protocols and the laws that are generally put into place by a very medicalized system is not holistically minded. But these are the rules that midwives have to follow. So typically when you hear the word midwife, it comes with this connotation of like holistic and natural and she's going to be like sprinkling essential oils everywhere, right? But the reality is, okay, we're going to go into a little bit of a history lesson. The reality is back in the 1800s, midwifery was, it was made a crime. You could not be You could not practice midwifery. And this was done systematically because most midwives at the time, this was like post-slavery, were black. And they were either black or they were immigrants, typically like Irish. And so when white body doctors began to come onto the birth scene and began to medicalize birth, uh, they weren't trusted Women were used to being served by other women. That's what they were comfortable with. That's what they knew. That's what made sense. And so there was a little bit of a time period where there were essentially male OBs who were trying to convince white women to go to the hospital and to you know get their services, but it wasn't working. So they had to literally run smear campaigns where they would uh, really just defame the character 
of midwives and the whole idea of midwifery itself was tarnished. It was looked at as something that was for poor people. It wasn't like something that educated wealthy people did. So that's the really short version. But essentially when midwifery, when midwifery became outlawed, there was a period of time where OBs were on the scene and it was just OBs. And then things began to pick up and they needed help, right? So they started to bring midwives back in to the system under the title of a nurse midwife, right? That's where we get the term certified nurse midwife from because they said, okay, we'll let y'all midwives back in, but it's going to be on our terms. We're going to teach you we're going to set the rules and regulations. You have to work under us and you're not a midwife. You're a nurse. You're a nurse first and a midwife second, basically. So fast forward to today, we are still dealing with the echoes of that time period where you have midwives who start their midwifery journey who want to be really natural really holistic really embody the energy of the medicine woman the midwife but they can't fully embody it because there are certain laws and rules put in place that um in some ways force their hand to practice in a more medicalized way and it's very underhanded very um, hard to notice this. I, for a long time, did not notice this at all until it was pointed out to me like, hey, you know, when the baby is born and the midwife is like, got their hand all like up in the vagina, like they don't really need to be doing that. That's That's kind of a medically thing to do. And like when the baby comes out and they're like rigorously like rubbing the baby's back and like making the baby cry, like this is also coming from a more kind of medical outlook where we need, you know, to essentially agitate the baby. Their transition to the earth can't be peaceful and still. Um, and I'm not saying that there's not a time and place for these things. When you are under the discretion of a midwife and she sees something that's kind of going wrong or not looking so good, like there's a time and a place for all of these things. But it's the standardization of this robotic like invasion of the birthing process and the birthing energy. So... All that to say, a medwife is typically characterized by someone who has the title of a CNM or even a CPM, uh, but they practice in a very medical way. They may be very emotionally distant. They may be cold. Um, and they're just, they're just there to get the job done. Now, I do want to make a clarification that a CNM most CNMs work in hospitals. So in 2017, 94% of CNM attended births occurred in a hospital. And so when you have the majority of the midwifery community practicing within a hospital, within the medical industrial complex, of course, you're going to have a, a skewed perspective of what midwifery really is. Of course, it's going to shift. Of course, it's going to change. Because as a midwife, you literally cannot go into a hospital room and give someone a tincture. That's not happening. That's just not happening. And to me, herbalism is one of the foundations of midwifery. Like herbalism and, mid and midwifery go hand in hand. They're synergistic. Like they go together. <laughs> So even just the simple fact that, you know, you can't bring and integrate that type of component into the hospital is already enough to be like, okay, this person is a midwife, basically. 
And sometimes this term medwife is used more to describe the person's disposition. Like you may have a midwife who works in a hospital and they try their hardest to be holistic and natural. And so we wouldn't really call them a midwife, but then you might have a CPM, a certified professional midwife who is only attending home births because CPMs do not work in hospitals. They only attend home births. And you may have a CPM who maybe used to be a nurse, you know, or used to work in a doctor's office. And she's already been imprinted with this medicalized mindset and, Even a home birth midwife can be very hands-on, very invasive. Um, I actually watched a video where a fairly new CPM, um, you know, did a whole, (laughs) I don't want to go into too, too much detail, but the baby was coming out and I think she got a little bit nervous. And instead of letting this woman birth her baby, in the position that she was already in, she made her like get into different positions, get on her back. And it's like, the baby was coming out. Like what's happening here? And I, you know, spoke to other people about it and they agreed. Like after watching the video, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think the midwife just got scared. And with that medical mindset, you get scared because with midwifery now, it's so easy for people to be nervous because you can get your license revoked. You can get sued. You can get in trouble. And you have to answer to a higher power. And of course, you want to keep mom and baby safe. But the stakes are even higher when it's like, okay, I want to keep mom and baby safe, but I also don't want to lose my job. And I also don't want to get sued. And I also don't want to deal with litigation. And I also don't want to have a bad name in the community. And this, that, and the third. And it's so much that you, you have... People who start off with a great heart for midwifery, but end up practicing in a more medicalized, emotionally emotionally distant, emotionally detached, robotic kind of way. So, and just to kind of put this into perspective, because I think it's probably really hard to be a midwife without being impacted by the over-medicalization of birth. For example... As a CPM, you can't, I want to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, As a CPM, you can't attend VBACs in certain states. As a CPM, uh, you cannot stay at a home birth after a certain amount of time of the water breaking. Meaning if you're attending a birth, her water breaks and it's been... I think like it's either 12 or 24 hours. You have to go into the hospital. Uh, There's a certain, you know, all these different tests that they have to give. And just to tell a little bit about my story, I didn't even have a home birth. I went to a birth center and my birth center didn't have CPMs. It had CNMs, which if you're not familiar, the CNMs are more popular And the CNMs have hospital privileges. And so they're generally more respected a little bit more. But I went to a birth center. I had CNMs. And there were, this was within a year of me having my first baby. So I was literally right back like, hey, I'm back. (laughs) Another baby. Um, And I had to take, you know, all the tests again. And I had done one of the tests really late. I was busy. I was stressed. Um, My partner was not with me at the time. So I was like, it was a lot going on. And I I told them this because they asked me, like, why did you get this test done so late? I was like, look, I was busy. I had a lot going on. And they basically looked in my face and said, well, you can't give birth here in the birth center no more because you got that test done too late. And if someone comes to audit the birth center, that's going to look really bad on paper. This is what they told me. (laughs) And I was floored. I was floored. I was like, what? I just had my baby here a year and some change ago. Like a year and a half ago, I literally just had a baby. And you're now saying, not because of my health, not because of test results, 
But because if someone comes and looks at the paperwork, it's going to look bad on paper that I got this test done late and y'all can get in trouble. That didn't feel like midwifery to me. But again, it's like these people are in a tight spot where they're trying to be midwives, but they have to follow these rules. But I was really I was really hurt over that because I'm like, y'all, I trusted y'all to deliver my first baby. And now you're kicking me out to go to the hospital. So y'all won't look bad. I don't care if y'all look bad. (laughs) This is about me. Like, this is what I'm feeling in the moment. And I've worked through that and it's like an obvious, well, should have got the test done earlier. But at the same time, it's like, wow, I thought we had some sort of a relationship or something. But really, this is just another system with which I'm being inserted to. And if it don't work out, you know, I get kicked out. So. Yeah, that number one mistake is hiring a midwife who you think is a midwife, but really They're very medical with the way that they practice and the way that they handle birth. Of course, this typically happens in the hospital, but you can definitely see this in the birth center and in home birth midwives. Now, there's also a secondary mistake in which people hire a midwife and think that the midwife is going to act in the role of a doula. Again, (laughs) I've seen this happen. I just recently uh, was at a birth and I don't think people fully realize that a midwife is supposed to be hands-off, which takes us back to the whole problem of the midwife because the midwife operates in a way that's so hands-on, people think it's normal. It's like, no, the midwife is really supposed to be hanging back. Like, unless there's a true emergency, she really should just be chilling, like, overseeing everything, but letting you do your thing. But I know I had the misconception that, oh, I have a midwife, I'm good. I don't need any other type of support for this first baby. But I was under the impression that my midwife, like I said, was going to be sprinkling essential oils and rubbing my back and burning sage and telling me what positions to use. And holding my hand and saying affirmations. And that's not how it went down. (laughs) That's not what happened. And I was in shock. I was like, yo. But then looking back at my first birth, I was like, oh, okay. Now that I understand the role of a midwife, she was doing exactly what she was supposed to do. She was a little bit distant. She could have did a smidge, a smidge more. But generally speaking, people hire midwives thinking that they're going to act in the capacity of a doula meaning they're going to check the baby's heart tones. They're going to check your dilation. They're going to check your blood pressure and give you medicine if you need it. And then they're also going to do all these comfort measures. And that's just not the reality. So if you're preparing, especially for your first birth, consider that your midwife is going to be hanging in the back. She's not going to be giving you one-on-one continuous support through every moment that is what a doula is for okay so that's number one number two and this is a pet peeve of mine (laughs) not doing anything to prepare yourself for your natural birth now this is a pet peeve of mine because I hear all the time I want to do it natural you know I don't want to be in pain da, 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 da. what can I do and then you tell the person what to do and they don't do those things and it's like sis sister come on and hypothetically hypothetically if you never drove a day in your life right and you went up to the NVA and you tried to pass the driver's test what, you do, what do you think is going to happen you're not going to pass the test. You may you may pass the written part, but when you get up in the driver's seat and try to parallel, parallel park that joint, it's not happening. You did not prepare yourself. So if this is your first time having a baby or your first time having a natural birth and you've done nothing to prepare yourself, it's not the same. 
It's not. Because you're made to do this. Your body is literally made to do this. But, but here's the caveat. You live in a society where the standard American lifestyle makes it difficult to have a smooth, peaceful, natural birth. Period. Point blank. From the food that we eat to the sedentary way that we live our lives to the fear of birth itself, you live in a society that makes it difficult. You have to go out of your way to have a natural birth. This is why I say, if you try to pass the driver's test and you have no prior experience, you would fail. It's the same basic concept. Now, if we were all living in the jungle, eating mangoes and coconuts, out in the sun, working in the fields, going to the beach, getting adequate rest, sunlight, clean water. Yes, we would probably all be popping our babies out with no problem, with no prior preparation and beautiful birth circles. (laughs) But that's not our reality. And then you also have the medical paradigm, which at every twist and turn challenges you and makes it that much more difficult to have a natural birth. So if you're planning to have your baby naturally and you don't want it to be a fiasco, you want it to be peaceful, calm, painless, preparation is literally the key. And I want to get into the specifics for a second of why our society makes it so difficult. Because number one, a lot of people have issues with malpositioning of their baby. And I use the word malpositioning lightly. Because you can give birth to a breech baby. You can give birth to a baby that is OP. You can give baby, you can, you can give baby, you can give birth to a baby that has a nuchal hand, right? So it's not like there's just one position that your baby has to be in, but there is what we call an optimal position, a position that works very well for the process of birth and a position that tends to create less of a struggle and less pain. And that's just what it is. So if you're not familiar At the end of pregnancy, your baby is going to be head down. They're either going to be head down facing you, right? So it would be like if you were giving somebody a hug upside down or they're going to be head down facing out. So looking out in the same direction that you're facing. As in y'all are both looking outward. (laughs) If you want a visual of this, um, you can look up Asaput anterior and Asaput posterior a a oa baby is considered optimal positioning because they are head down facing you so that's the upside down hug and this makes it easy for the narrow part of their head the top part of their head to get into the vaginal canal pass through the pelvis and the widest part of their head is going to be tilted in such a way that it can slide through the vaginal canal. Now, if your baby is OP, this is still definitely possible to have a natural birth, but it's a little bit trickier because the hard part of their head, the part that is a little bit more developed and a little bit more hard is going to be rubbing up against your back in the hard part of your bones in your back. So that can create some tension and some discomfort and some pain versus if your baby is OA. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of OP babies being born nowadays because that heavy part of your baby's head, you got to remember your baby is floating in water, is flipping so that they are OP because so many of us are sitting and laying down throughout our pregnancies a whole, whole lot. We're sitting in those big reclining chairs. We're sitting in chairs at work. We're sitting at home. And by getting into this kind of reclined position, like the way you sit in your car, if you pull your seat back a little bit, recline it back, 
This facilitates the baby to get into that OP position, which can create back labor, tension, discomfort, more so than a baby that's OA. Now, I understand it's difficult. It's challenging to figure out ways to not constantly be like sitting and reclining back, especially when you're tired and you're pregnant. But sitting, simply sitting on a birthing ball instead of sitting in a chair, flipping your chair around so you can lean over your chair versus reclining back can be really helpful. But literally the, the, the way that we have created our society is we're a sitting society. <laughs> we just sit, we're very sedentary. And then also you have to look at your eating habits. It's very normal. I talked about this in the recent Instagram post, but it's very normal for us to encourage people who are pregnant to be lazy and eat a bunch of shit. And that's exactly what I want to call it because the, the, the food that has all these chemicals and toxins and preservatives and all of this stuff that isn't real food, it's out of a lab, it's, it's not real food. We're putting this into the body. We're encouraging pregnant people to eat whatever you want. Stay a mile away from, from deli meat. But besides that, yeah, eat the potato, the potato chips and the ice cream and then this, that, and the third. And I want to be super clear. This is not about gaining weight at all. I am not here to manage people's body image. This is strictly about the fact that toxins... Babies are born with so many toxins in them at birth. But these toxins, these preservatives, these endocrine disruptors, which is basically chemicals that disrupt your hormones and hormones are what are being released during birth to help you contract. These endocrine disruptors are everywhere. They're in hair products, they're in perfumes, they're in the paint on your wall, in the spray that they spray on your clothes before they package it up. It's everywhere and it's mostly in our food. So just to pile more endocrine disrupting toxins on top of what's already in the environment and putting that into our body and it's causing mucus and disease and inflammation, it just doesn't. It doesn't make sense for us to think that this is okay for a person who is not just getting ready to birth a baby, but creating a baby. We want to put the best literal ingredients that we can when we are creating this person. This is a new person. We want to give them the best that we can. And we really don't emphasize this as much as we should because we're just... A consumer culture that's addicted to dairy and addicted to meat and addicted to chemicals and all types of things. And again, I'm on my own journey. Like I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, but I am trying to be clear and not beat around the bush because beating around the bush is not going to help you have a better birth <laughs> at the end of the day. But take baby steps. In my pregnancy, I definitely had my days where I ate the shit and I was like, that's what I'm doing today. But tomorrow I'll make a smoothie. I'll put some sea moss in it. I'll have some turmeric and some ginger and drink all my water and eat lots of veggies. You know, and we take it one day at a time. And then this last thing that's ingrained into the standard American lifestyle is our belief system about birth, which is ingrained with fear and trauma and a codependency on the medical system to save us from ourselves, save us from our rites of passage. Because we have literally been convinced that, you know, this is going to be the worst thing you ever experienced in your life. Your vagina is going to be ripped open. It's going to be so bad. Blah. Like this is the, 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 the system of belief that people are walking around with both women and men. And so if you do not do something to prepare your mind, believe me, believe me, <laughs> believe me. What's that song? Anyways, you 
are going to be impacted by the collective fear within this society because it's been programmed into you. I can guarantee that if you're listening to this podcast, you have heard at least one negative birth story. And it happened probably before you yourself even got pregnant. You've probably at one point either seen on TV, uh, heard from a family member or a friend, heard from a doctor, something horrific about birth. So if natural birth is your goal, preparation is key. And part of that preparation has to be you undoing that belief system, releasing those fears and going into your subconscious mind and intentionally intentionally making a decision to put new information in a new belief system because your hormonal system, the structure of how your hormones work, they work in conjunction with your emotions. I was actually just reading something in a book that said all of the information that we process, like with our senses, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our touch, our smell, everything Before it goes to the cortex to be processed by like the analytical mind, it goes through like the limbic system, the limbic brain. And I believe that's, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but I I believe that's what it said. And essentially, this is a part of the brain that decides if something is a threat or not. And it decides whether or not you're going to go into fight or flight mode. And so... This essentially means that, you know, when you take in this information, it has a direct impact on your hormones. So if you hear that negative birth story, that scary birth story, your brain is going to make a decision right then and there like, oh, I don't think, I don't think birth is safe, (laughs) y'all. I'm just imagining like that Inside Out movie. And there's like all the people in the head. And can you imagine like one of those people is like your brain taking in all this information. And one of these people is your uterus. And one of these people is your hormones. And your brain is taking in all of these, you know, crazy birth stories and fear. And it's not just what your brain hears audibly. It's also about the collective energy, right? Like when you walk into the hospital and there's this collective energy of like, being on the edge of their seat, like anything can happen at any time because y'all know birth ain't really safe and birth is really painful. So we might need to go save somebody from themselves. It's the energy too that your your brain and your body is picking up on. And so imagine your brain taking all this information in and then looking at your uterus and being like, yo, and your uterus is like, what, what's up? And your brain is like, so, uh, I've been analyzing this information that we have on file about birth, right? Because, you know, we're getting ready to give birth soon to our first baby. And um, it's not looking too good. Like, I, what I've got over here is that it's definitely going to be painful, you know? So just get ready for that. Uh, really dangerous. So we should definitely be in a hospital. And then, yeah, this just, this overall looks pretty scary. So... I don't know. I think I'm going to talk to the hormones and just, you know, tell them to go ahead and put on the fight or flight when we when we go into childbirth. And then the uterus is looking back like, what? Are you serious? Hmm. Well, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't do this at all. And then uterus is looking at the hormones and the hormones is like, okay, so we're we're in fight or flight. Adrenaline to the roof. Cortisol going up. Birth hormones going down because this is not a good situation. And I'm being facetious right now, (laughs) but I'm trying to paint a very clear picture of this is really how it goes down. And because your body has to expel this baby, it's not going to just not go into labor. You're going to go into labor. But those hormones, those hormones are going to create tension in the body, fear, Instead of the blood going to the uterus, it goes out to the extremities, which that rush of cortisol and adrenaline can result in a stalled labor that's really long because you're stressed out. It can result in tension in the body, which can create pain 
because the body is tense and the uterus is tense and that tension on top of tension is equaling pain. And so it can result in a birth experience that's just not what you wanted. And it really comes down to the core of your belief system. And you can't just say, you can't just walk around and be like, no, it's going to be good. Like, I'm not afraid. You have to dig into that shadow work and be like, all right, hold on. Am I carrying any trauma from my mother and her birth with me? What are the things that she thinks about birth that she may have imprinted energetically on me while she was pregnant, when she was giving birth, the weeks and days and months after she gave birth? What were the stories? Here's a big one right here. What were the stories that my mother told about our birth the days and weeks and months after I was born? When I was sitting there in her arms or sitting there in the car seat or in the crib and somebody comes and asks, hey, how was it? Does she tell a beautiful story or does she tell a story of fear and pain and trauma? Because that was the first story you heard and you didn't even know you were hearing it. Moving on. (laughs) Number three. Mistake, not researching your hospital and thinking that your birth plan will be followed to the T. So this is kind of a two for one right here. A lot of people write birth plans and they write the birth plan and they think, okay, that's it. We're good. I've made my request. I've typed them up. We're going to you know, hand this to the person when we walk in. And the problem with this is that Hospital culture supersedes your desires. Hospital culture supersedes your birth plan. And Rebecca Decker talks about this at length in her book, Babies Are Not Pizza, Pizzas. And she does a really good job of clarifying how there's a difference between just practicing medicine and the culture of a hospital. And essentially that just means there are certain things in a certain way that nurses and OBs operate and they do it routinely. And it's not because they necessarily have to, but that's just the way that they do it. And so if you come into a hospital that's, they're just used to clamping the cord as soon as baby comes out, You putting on your birth plan, like delayed cord clamping, number one, they might not even know what you mean by that. Number two, they might just be like, she don't know what she's talking about. (laughs) Cut the cord. So when you write your birth plan, you also need to have a discussion with your provider. Like before you go into labor, okay, and don't just hand it to them. Sit down. Here are some things that I am going to have happen at my birth. I'd like to know, is this what you normally do? That's the question I think people should be asking. Instead of saying, can we do this? Because I'm going to keep it 1000 with you right now. And I'm going to sound the way I sound when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have personally personally witnessed mothers giving their birth plan to their OB during a prenatal visit. The OB says, yep, we can do this. We can facilitate this. This looks good. And then during the birthing process, it doesn't happen. The birth plan is not followed. And it's not because there was an emergency. It's simply because of hospital culture. That's not what we're doing. We're in a very robotic routine with set habits of how we do it. And the birth plan goes out the window. I've had people tell me who are, uh, I had a friend who has a friend who's in midwifery school and they told her the people that come in with the birth plans, they normally are, are laughed at behind the scenes and they normally get the opposite of what's on the birth plan. And it's like some sort of joke, like the longer the birth plan, uh, you know, like 
I don't know, the worst the birth outcome or, or the more likely she is to not have that birth plan coming to fruition. But it's for a lot of hospitals and a lot of medical professionals. It's a known thing. Like we don't follow birth plans. We don't we don't care about your birth plan. <laughs> and the thing is, they will look at you in the face and be like, yes, your birth plan looks good. We'll do this, that and the third. And then in the room, in the labor labor and delivery room, that's not how it goes down. Or the other thing is you might get a different provider because your provider is not available when you go into labor. So you get a different provider who's like definitely doesn't care about your birth plan. Now, I'm not saying this is everyone, but I am saying that this is the majority. I'm going to go ahead and say this is the majority. But you may have had different experiences. I'm not saying all OBs and nurses are like this, okay? Because I know it's going to be the people who like, my OB followed my birth plan and it was great. Awesome. But that's not most people's stories. Even so much so where I've heard people, I've heard people tell me stories where they go to their visit and they say, oh yeah, we have, um, like they'll have on their birth plan that they want intermittent monitoring. They don't want to be hooked up to the monitors through the whole labor. And so they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't be hooked up the whole time. So they, they'll verbalize, you will not be hooked up to the monitors the whole time. We have wireless monitors. So you can get a wireless monitor. And then that way, you can just go about your business. There's no, there's no like tether. You can move freely, right? And so we get to the birth. And we're like, okay, where's the wireless monitor at? And they're like, oh, well, we only had three and or we only had four and two of them are broken and one person is in labor right now and then the other one needs to be charged. I cannot make this shit up, y'all. <laughs> I cannot make this up. So when you write your birth plan, not only do you need to talk to your provider and, and ask them, what do you normally do? Because if it's not what they normally do, there's a 50-50 chance that they're going to ignore your birth plan. They're either going to forget because they're in the habit of doing it how they do or they just aren't going to care, you know. But then there's this other component where instead of trying to convince your OB or your nurse to follow your birth plan and instead of trying to see if they will acquiesce to your birth plan and respect it, not acquiesce, respect it. The other thing you can do is research your hospital. Research your hospital. And even if you're having a home birth or a birth center birth, research the birth center, research the midwife and ask people, hey, how did your birth go? What types of things were in your birth plan? Did they follow your birth plan? Was there any conflict there? And that's where you're going to get the real information. Because then you will have somebody who can say, oh, yeah, I had a birth plan and they followed it. Or, oh, yeah, I had a birth plan and they totally disregarded it. That's where the real tea is. Get up on these Facebook groups, okay? These mommy groups. Get in there <laughs> and see what's popping. Because they'll have the info for you. The information that you'll never get verbatim from the people that work at the hospital. Now, <laughs> all that being said, I typically tell my clients that your birth plan is for you and your family. Your birth plan is a start point. You know what you want. Now we work backwards from that. Okay, you want a vaginal birth. How do we prepare? You want to do no medicine. How do we prepare? No induction. How do we prepare? And then you step back and you look at your birth plan. And this is the key to a birth plan. Does my birth plan match the birth environment that I'm going to? Because if it's not a good match, then you may need to pick a different provider. Your birth plan actually is like, <laughs> it's like a little divination tool. It's like, all right, let's step back and look. Like, did we pick the right birthing location and you hold it up and you're like mm, it's not stacking up not an actual divination tool but a deciding tool right 
Because if you're like most of the people at this hospital do not have natural births, they seem to push epidurals. They like to induce people before they do date. Hmm. Maybe I should go, you know, to the other <laughs> part of town where there's a birth center or where the hospital is a little bit more lenient on certain things. Okay. I'm not going to keep beating that dead horse. Number four, and this is a tricky one. This is a tricky one, but not speaking up and not speaking directly. This can sabotage your birth. And I'm mainly speaking to people who are in the hospital, right? Because that's like 90% of the population. And it's pretty self-explanatory that if there's, again, something on your birth plan that you want to see coming to fruition and you notice that people are not respecting what's on your birth plan, they're not respecting what you're requesting, what you're asking for, then you're going to have to speak up and you're going to have to be direct. And this is kind of hard because of oxytocin. And it's really not fair because of oxytocin. And if you look at what the hormone oxytocin does to the body, which is the same hormone that makes your uterus contract, it also has an effect called tend and befriend. And so oxytocin essentially makes you acquiesce. It makes you, when you see a possible threat, a possible enemy, because you know you probably can't run because you're in labor, you have a tend and befriend type of response, meaning you try to be friendly, you try to be polite, you acquiesce, you try to be a good little girl. It's that kind of energy. Like, let's make peace, not war. And so what happens when your body is flooded with oxytocin, it can be really difficult to speak up for your spouse, speak up for yourself and to be direct and even more difficult if you don't normally do that. Again, habits, culture. If you know yourself and you know that you typically struggle to speak up in front of quote unquote medical authority or any type of authority, if you struggle to be direct, if you beat around the bush, then your pregnancy is a time where you need to practice speaking up and being direct. Now, this is also, of course, <laughs> a really great reason to have a doula because a doula can echo what you're saying and advocate for you. But the reality is, the reality is, and it's a harsh reality, as a doula, it doesn't really matter what I say. It matters to a certain extent, but in the realm of litigation, I cannot legally speak for any client of mine. The only person that can speak to you is a person that you're that can speak for you is a person that you're married to. That's pretty much it. And that's only in certain circumstances, honestly. You are the only person who can be like, no, don't do this. No, don't touch me. No, that's not how it's going down. No, I don't want that. No, don't put that medicine in my body. You're the only one who really can say it and it be respected. Now, I'm not saying I haven't been respected in hospital situations, but the thing is they don't have to. There ain't no rules that say they have to listen to the doula, but they do have to listen to you. And they do have to get informed consent from you. And if they don't, there can be a legal issue because no one can be forced a medical procedure legally. Now, it happens every day. It happens every day. I had someone tell me how they got, uh, <clears throat> how they got a vaginal exam without consenting. And this was, they, they, their support person was not there yet. Their doula was not there yet. And I was in shock. But then I also wasn't in shock because like this is, this is normal. This is how this system operates. And the, and the struggle is that we as women 
think it's normal. The struggle is when I have a client and I say, at the end of the day, you have to speak up and be direct because there is no medical procedure that should be forced on you. And the reaction that I get is that of surprise. Every time people are surprised, I can actually say no. I'm allowed to say no. This is almost always the words that they use. I'm allowed to say no. Yes. Is mind blowing. Is mind blowing that so many mothers walk around under the impression that once they pass those hospital doors and go up into L&D, they essentially have no autonomy, no agency. They must follow the rules and protocols and directions. This is what most of, of what society thinks. But we make the mistake of not speaking up, not being direct. And ultimately, a lot of this comes down to embodying your, your position, your stance. So if your stance is, no, I do not want uh, a vaginal exam, you have to embody that. And sometimes what I see is people saying, no, I don't want to exam. But then they're slowly like, you know, in the, in the OB, it's like, well, come on, let's just. And then they're saying no, but their body is saying yes, because they're saying no out of their mouth. But their body is laying back and opening up their legs and waiting for a vaginal exam. If you don't want a vaginal exam, say no with your mouth and your body. Get into a position where your vagina is not easily accessible. And I don't want to have to like say these things. It sucks. But this is the reality, y'all. This is the way the system works. You will be forced. Many times you will be bullied. You will be convinced. And if you do not stand your ground, then they're going to do what they want to do. And again, I know you're in labor. Your birthing waves are getting stronger and stronger. You're feeling pressure. You might be feeling nauseous. You might be really uncomfortable. The oxytocin is through the roof. You're not even on this planet. And this is why it all goes back to does your birth plan match up with the place that you're having your baby? Because you should not be having to fight for the birth that you want. You should not be having to argue. You should not be having to stand your ground during your birthing process. But if you pick a birthing environment that does not align with you, it's highly likely that you're going to have to do these things, either in a very small, subtle way or in a very big, big, huge way. But at the end of the day, and I'm not blaming anyone. I want to be clear. I'm not saying, oh, it's your fault that they... Gave you that exam when you didn't consent. Hell no. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we co-create the situations that happen to us. And if you decide to attend a hospital for your birthing process. And you know that there's a likelihood. A high likelihood that you may not be respected, you may not be listened to, you may be convinced or bullied or forced into certain things. You also have to go in knowing that I'm going to have to speak up for myself and I'm going to have to be direct, period, point blank. It shouldn't be this way. It really shouldn't. But this is where we are. Number five, the last thing I have here on my list is huge. It shouldn't be something that we have to do. But again, this is the society that we live in. Not understanding birth interventions. So there are several ways that the medical industrial complex intervenes on an otherwise perfectly normal, perfectly natural birth. 
And this is not just about epidurals and C-sections. It's way, way deeper than that. Like literally from the moment that you leave your home, you are experiencing an intervention by leaving your safe space. And then after that, there's a cascade of interventions that either knowingly or unknowingly happen. And we seem to focus on the big ones, the C-section, the epidural, the episiotomy. But those are the end of the list. And they usually result because way in the beginning, there were these little teeny tiny unperceivable interventions happening that we didn't really realize, but ultimately have kind of messed up the birth experience. Some would just rattle off a few. Getting your dilation checked upon entry to the hospital means someone, to be clear, putting their hand and arm up into your vaginal canal and your cervix. Bright lights. No eating. No real privacy. Someone asking you lots of questions and to sign papers. Changing out of your personal clothing. Fetal monitoring. Being made to lay down and be still. Restricted movement. IV fluids. Pitocin. Artificial rupture of your waters epidural and on and on and on and on now of course there is a time and a place for some of these things in the case of emergencies in the case that we really need to help in a mother and a baby some of these things will help some of these things are necessary within the paradigm that we operate in but to make these things standard procedure that everyone is under these protocols and restrictions and interventions is what I'm seeing is the problem. So I'm not going to break down this entire list of interventions that that's for another episode or (laughs) that's for another series of episodes, but I do want to touch on the ones that carry the most misconception, right? So Big misconception, okay, leaving my house and going to the hospital, there's nothing to worry about. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? But, and this is, I can't frame this as something that you can avoid. This is not necessarily avoidable if you're going to have a hospital or birth center birth. But it's something to consider impacts the birthing process because You go from being in your room, in your bed, in your tub, on your toilet, in your clothes, with your smells and your food and your music and your candles and your environment to a totally sterile, otherwise foreign environment. And it's not just changing the environments because that's pretty jarring on the system but it's also the calculation of okay when do we go okay so now we have to time the contractions so now the analytical mind is working when it should be shutting down because the thinking brain is like okay they're four minutes apart they were five minutes apart they've been four minutes apart for 10 minutes okay here comes another one okay hit the button You know, and the thinking brain, when it should be quieting down and shutting down, it's just going, 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 trying to calculate contractions, trying to calculate when to go to the hospital, trying to calculate, okay, it's rush hour. Don't go this way, go that way. Okay, let me call the OB. Let me call the hospital. Let me get the bag. So there's a lot of calculating going on there. And there's, of course, there's ways to reduce that. As a doula, I really try to reduce that level of calculating when we're moving from home to hospital. But at the end of the day, your body, your energy, your hormones, your system, your baby knows that you're at home. And then it knows that you've moved into this foreign environment. 
So that in and of itself can impact the birthing process. I've seen some people have super strong, you know, they're just contracting. Boom, boom, boom. You know, we are in labor land. It's going. Get in the car, go to the hospital. Everything ceases. Everything stops. Because it's not just about going into this sterile foreign environment. It's also about the story that's behind this place. What are the stories in your mind about going to a hospital? Most people look at hospitals as places where people get sick and people die. And I'm not trying to get morbid here, but we're getting a little bit morbid here because this is the information that's in your brain. And so it's going to impact all of us differently. It doesn't mean every person who goes to the hospital is going to like have a bad experience. And it doesn't mean that transferring from laboring at home to laboring to the hospital is going to be a negative experience. I'm simply saying that sometimes people show up and they're like, why did my contraction stop? And they don't know why. And that's probably why. There's some level of adrenaline, cortisol, fear, stress, overanalyzing, overthinking that has hampered the birthing process. Thanks for listening to the first half of the Her Holistic Path podcast. If you'd like to hear the full episode, you can meet me over at patreon.com slash herholisticpath. Your support helps me to further my reach in my community and truly make a difference in birth. But if your listening does stop here, thanks for stopping by and feel free to share this episode, rate, review, and of course, subscribe. Wishing you love, abundance, and alignment on your journey. Peace.